Well, if you have a Bible with you, would you open it and turn to Psalm 72? Let's get to Psalm 72. We're in a series in the Psalms. We've been calling it, Pour Out Your Heart to Him. That's what Psalm 62 says, a little phrase there that fits a lot of the Psalms, because the Psalms are prayers, they're emotional songs. And many of these prayers are easily and directly relatable to our lives, to our experience, to our prayers, and the kind of things that we would want to sing. But some prayers in this big book called the Psalms are less easily relatable. So sometimes you have a king praying, God, reveal yourself. And we can say, yes, amen, I I need more of him. I pray God would reveal himself today more intimately and, and powerfully. But then sometimes you have the king praying for his kingdom. And unless you're a king in a kingdom with specific promises from God about that kingdom, some of it doesn't apply to you. Or so it seems. Psalm 72 is a prayer for Solomon, the king, the son of David. Notice the title of the psalm, even before you get to verse 1. It says, of Solomon. The Hebrew here can be translated either by Solomon or for Solomon. It's the same of those titles that refer to David. Usually with David, we think that David wrote those psalms that say of David. The same Hebrew is here, though. It could either be by David or for David. Now, we usually think that the ones that say something about David at the beginning are by David. Scholars seem to think that this isn't the case with Solomon, that they they instead think that David probably wrote this for Solomon. So it isn't by Solomon, it's for Solomon. But it wouldn't be weird or surprising if Solomon wrote it for himself, even though he's praying here for the king and for the kingdom and praying great and big lofty things. David and Solomon elsewhere in the Bible pray for themselves and for their thrones in similar ways, and they wouldn't view it as selfish. They'd view it as simply praying for God's promises, praying God's plan, praying God's God's plan to come to fruition, as he's already said. It would, but it really doesn't matter whether it's by Solomon or whether it's by David or whether it's by someone else. We do know for sure that it really is about Solomon and it's for Solomon. And again, that has more relevance for you than you might think, but in a roundabout way. Let's start out by noticing several themes that are scattered through Psalm 72. Normally we read through the whole psalm and then we start to break it into pieces and look at it according to certain themes or categories, things like that. Today let me do something different. Let me mention a theme and then we'll read the verses in that psalm that, that are attached to that theme. So about five or so themes here. The first theme is one of justice and care. Justice and care. And it's right at the beginning. Verse 1. The first seven verses say, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. See, that's care. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon, throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. If you skip to verse 12, you see the same themes of justice and care. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. He saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. So themes of justice and care. You also see sort of a broader, bigger umbrella theme of dominion. 
It's explicit in verse 8, but implied to the whole psalm. Anytime we're talking about justice, it has to do with God's dominion, right? His rule, his reign. But in verse 8, it says, may he have dominion from sea to sea. The theme of dominion. There's also the theme of praise. Look at verse 9. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Verse 15 also, theme of praise. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. Then, I think you have themes of what we might say is fame and long life. Fame and long life. Verse 5, May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon, throughout all generations. That's long life. Verse 7, we read it already, we'll read it again. In his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. That's really long life. Verse 15, long may he live, may gold of Sheba be given to him. And then verse 17, may his name endure forever. His fame, see fame, continue as long as the sun. Fame and long life mingled together. May people be blessed in him. And all nations call him blessed. And then verse 17, which we just read, nations being blessed in him, calling him blessed. That leads to the theme of blessing, which is scattered all throughout as well. Blessing referring to peace and provision and protection. Of course, these are all intermingled, aren't they? It's what verse 3 just calls prosperity. Now, you hear prosperity, and you might think that means money. That means riches. And that's partly thanks to the TV preachers that talk about prosperity that way. The Old Testament talks about prosperity in a a much richer, grander scale. The Hebrew shalom is peace. But it's not just peace inside our hearts or peace with others. It's peace all over. Upward, outward, downward, all around. It's wholeness, completeness. Prosperity is what will come with this king, at least in this prayer request here. Justice and care, dominion, praise, fame in long life, prosperity, blessing. Look at the way verse 16 puts it. There it talks about an abundance of corn waving. Imagine a cornfield and seeing them wave in the wind. An abundance of corn waving on the tops of the mountains. Now, I'm no farmer, but I don't think that's a good idea to try to grow crops on the top of a mountain. I've never been up to Sandia Peak and saw a farmer up there. That would be silly, right? You go to where there's dirt and deep dirt and rich dirt. You don't go to the top of the mountain, which is basically just rock. But when this one comes, this king, when these prayer requests of Psalm 72 are answered, there's going to be such provision, it'll be like mountaintop crops flowing with corn and other things. When it says in verse 17, the second half, that the people will be blessed and all nations will call him blessed, it's reaching back to what we saw last week, Genesis 12, promises given to Abraham. In you... Will a nation be blessed? And all the nations will be blessed. And they will call you blessed. Psalm 72 is reaching back, pulling that forward, tying it to the king in Israel and saying, let him be blessed, let all nations be blessed in him, and let them call him blessed. Rich themes. And notice that all these themes really are described in a global way. It's global. When it says in verse 8, may it be all the way from the river to the ends of the earth. The river here is referring to the Euphrates River. It was the furthest that they knew of in Solomon's day to the east of them. Furthest they knew of to the east, 
and kings of Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. That's verse 10. Let the kings of Tarshish come and worship you. That's the furthest they knew to the west in their day. Furthest east, furthest west. And then verse 10 also talks about the kings of Sheba and Seba. Furthest kingdoms to the south that they knew of in that day. And less specific, but even more global, is the way verse 8 puts it, sea to sea. That's complete. The coastlands, the ends of the earth. Let the desert tribes bow down, verse 9. And then verse 11, all kings even will fall down before him. All nations will serve him. All nations will call him blessed. And he'll be like, according to verse 6, may he be like the rain that falls on the mown grass. Freshly mown grass. And rain afterwards. It is anything smelled better than freshly mown grass and rain. I haven't smelled that in a long time. But I remember that. I remember that. My Xeroscape doesn't smell like anything. But mown grass with rain on it. Whoa. Let him be like that. And let him be like that for the whole earth. Let him be like showers for the whole earth. See, global. But this is awful big, isn't it? It's not just global, it's also godlike. See what it says in verse 18 and 19? Where their attention directly, explicitly turns to the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. He'll have to do this. He'll have to answer these requests. Blessed be his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. You know what these verses, verses 18 and 19, say about God? Has basically already been said about Solomon in the verses before. Now that's strange, isn't it? Even the first sentence seems to mingle the human and the divine just a bit. We're there, Solomon or David prays for Solomon that the king would have God's justice. That the king would have God's righteousness. God-like stuff mingled throughout even though this is a prayer for Solomon. Is it really though? Does this say too much? For Solomon, are these shoes too big for that king to fill? Well, yes and no is the answer to that. Maybe we can gain some perspective on how Psalm 72 fits into the whole big story of this big old book by zooming out the lens a little bit and remembering some of the things around it. I've said before that the Bible is like like a quilt or a blanket made up of many threads And so you can take one thread and pull on it, and you can see where it moves in the blanket. Okay, There are a lot of threads, and these threads are like themes. I've said before that the Bible is like a lake, a still lake. And you can take a theme from the Bible, like a rock, a smooth rock, and you can throw it across the smooth water of the Bible, and you can see where it hits. So let's take the theme of kingship today. And let's see where that thread gets pulled in the blanket of the Bible. Let's see as we pick up the rock of kingship and throw it across the top of the Bible. Let's see where it splashes. I think there are four places where the blanket moves or where or the water splashes. The first is to back up to the beginning of the story and talk about the promise of a great king. The promise of a great king is actually hinted at way back in Genesis 1 when Adam and Eve were called by God to rule over creation. Genesis 1.26, they're to have dominion over creation. The same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 72 about the kind of rule, dominion, that this king would have. So Adam and Eve were given this commission to rule over the garden. And you know the story. It didn't go well. 
They didn't rule over it very well. In fact, they got beat by a snake. And God threw them out. And then they have the task now of subduing the whole earth. So what do you do? Well, God tells them, get busy. Start making kids. It's a big earth. You've got to fill it. <laughs> and they do. That's really the opening chapters of the Bible. It's them having kids and some of those kids doing well and some of those kids doing poorly and some growing into civilizations that need to be wiped out and others being preserved in God's mercy. Eventually, you get to the end of that book and you have a promise there. Genesis 49.10, God says that they'll become, they'll come a lion-like ruler from the tribe of Judah one day. From the tribe of Judah, they'll become this ruler, lion-like. And it says, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. He'll obey, they'll obey him. He'll be a true leader. Maybe it's Moses. Because Moses is next in the story, isn't he? No, you find out it's not Moses. Even Deuteronomy 17, when Moses is still alive, God is saying... When you come to the land that I promised you, and you get there and you get settled in it, you're going to say, we want a king over us like the nations around us. And God says there, Deuteronomy 17, you may indeed set a king over you, one whom the Lord your God will choose. So God says, you're going to ask for a king. I'll give you a king. A king is coming. Apparently it's not Moses because Moses isn't even going into the land. And you need a king, because Judges 21 says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Anarchy. So, 1 Samuel 8, they say, Give us a king like the nations. And it's partly bad, because they're essentially rejecting God as their king, by wanting a king like the nations, but... It's expected, on the other hand, because this was the plan all along. God said in Deuteronomy 17, you're going to have a king. You're going to ask me, I'll say yes, but I get to pick him. So there's promise of a great king. But then secondly, the second part of this blanket, this second splash of the water of God's word, is the anticipation of the great king. Because the promise turns to anticipation when you have a king in Israel, you have Saul. But Saul isn't such a great guy. Because God clearly makes known that David's going to be the next guy. And Saul doesn't like that. Saul opposes David. He has this love-hate relationship with David. He'd play me your harp. Here's a javelin. You know, he's, he's weird. So it's not Saul. I mean, he's trying to kill God's man. That's... That's kind of an important part of being the good king who's ruling over the people and and getting the obedience of the people. You don't kill people wrongly. So eventually he dies and David's king. And and maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the lion-like ruler from the tribe of Judah because he's great in battle and God's hand is on him. And he's a man after God's own heart. He has great success. And God gave him big promises. You can read 2 Samuel 7 and see how God enlarges the promises of the kingship, the kingdom, the throne, the lineage of David. Such huge promises. Maybe this is the one. No. In fact, David isn't even going to be the one to build the temple. A pretty important thing when you're setting up house in the city And God needs his house. He's been in a tent for a long time as they travel through the wilderness. And he needs a house. He needs a place of worship. And it's not going to happen under David's watch. So he's clearly not the man. But maybe his son Solomon, from whom the temple comes, maybe he's the one. I mean, 1 Kings 3 shows that Solomon's amazing gifts of wisdom are being exercised even to care for orphans. Psalm 72-like. There, God promises also to lengthen Solomon's days. Psalm 72-like. 
1 Kings 4 talks of the amazing material blessings that have come to Solomon and then through him to the whole kingdom. I mean, it was rich in David's day. Now it's just off the charts. 1 Kings 4 also talks about Solomon's influence among the other nations and with the other kings. He's a leader of the kings. He's a king of kings, dare we say, in a sense. Proof of that is 1 Kings 10, where the Queen of Sheba, perhaps the richest empire of the day, comes to Jerusalem, and she brings rich gifts to receive wisdom from Solomon. Psalm 72-like, isn't it? In fact, 1 Kings 10 is something like the high point in the Old Testament. Here you have all these promises that have built and built and built, grown and grown and grown. Now Solomon is faithful. He's worshipful. He's obedient at this time. He's asking for all the right things. See his prayer in 1 Kings 10. It's amazing. The temple's built. The ark has, has been brought in. The glory of God has descended upon the temple. He now dwells in the midst of his people like he's been promising over and over and over again. God is pleased. The Israelite nation is being a blessing to the whole world. They're blessed, and they're blessing the nations. The nations are calling them blessed. The Abrahamic promises of a land and a people and a nation and being a blessing are all being fulfilled. It looks like God has fulfilled his promises, and it looks like Psalm 72's prayer requests have been answered. Or so it seems. Because it's just one more chapter, 1 Kings 11, that takes a tumble. A downward spiral begins. Solomon in 1 Kings 11 turns to foreign women, which God said not to do. Solomon's heart is turned away from the Lord because of the foreign women, because of their false gods and their idols. And he turns to their false gods and, and their idols. And that's why God said not to marry foreign women. Because religion and marriage are very intimate things. And one of them will get messed up. Apparently, according to Ecclesiastes, Solomon also turned to, to things. Material possessions, accomplishments, fame, distractions, learning, entertainment, booze, and more women in search of satisfaction. And all of this leads to, in 1 Kings 12, a divided kingdom. God judges his people because of Solomon's sin and other people's sin as well. He judges them with nothing less than a crack down the middle of the nation that he has promised to build and care for. So now there's a northern and there's a southern. There's Israel and there's Judah, a divided kingdom. So if Psalm 72 is only about Solomon, it's a sad and empty prayer request that looked good for a chapter of the Bible. The rest of the Old Testament story after Solomon is just a cycle of bad kings and then some good kings and at times no kings at all. And that's a problem when you've got a lot of promises about a king and a kingdom. It's a roller coaster. The whole Old Testament is this roller coaster in a sense of promises and then some partial fulfillment. It looks good, hopes are high. And then sin, disillusionment, disappointment. In fact, after, second, after 1 Kings 12, it's more like this. Promises, partial fulfillment, sin, disappointment. Then larger promises, renewed promises, bigger ones. Bigger disappointment. Just keeps going. And the prophets these books at the end of the Old Testament. The later parts of the Old Testament kept talking about a Psalm 72-like king, a real king that was still to come. Let me show you one. Well, a couple. 
Isaiah 11. Would you turn there? Isaiah 11. We could go to so many, but Isaiah 11 has about 10 verses in a row that show us this promise of a king and a kingdom at a time that's much, much, much after Solomon. Isaiah 11. Keep your finger in Psalm 72. We'll go back there in just a bit. Verse 1 of Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's David's father. Solomon's grandpa. From the stump come a shoot. If you have aspen trees in your yard, you know what shoots are. They just run, right? They run up. They, they come from the bottom and, and, and they spring up. So there's going to be something that comes from the lineage of Jesse and David and Solomon, a branch from its roots, and it will bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. That sounds good. Spirit of wisdom and understanding. Solomon had that. that well, let's hope it's better than Solomon. The Spirit of counsel and might. David had might. Let's Let's hope it's more than that. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see. Or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor. Psalm 72 like. He'll decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Psalm 72 like. And he'll strike the earth with the Rod of his mouth. Tuck that away. That will come up again. With the breath of his lips, he'll kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And here's what will happen when this guy comes. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. Leopard will lie down with a goat. Calf and lion will hang out. Little children will lead them. Cow and bear, they're going to eat together. But not like you think of it. Not like, like, the, like the bear's eating, but the cow's not. They're going to eat together. And then verse 8, nursing child will even play over the hole of a cobra. A, a kid and a cobra are going to be buddies. Mailmen in St. Bernard's are going to lick each other's faces. <laughs> I mean, do you see this as describing, even if in poetic terms, unparalleled peace, unthinkable reconstruction, things that are normally enemies will get fixed and there'll be peace. Verse 10 says, In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So that's one place that talks about the Psalm 72 like king coming and still coming. Micah 5 says that from Bethlehem will come forth for me, God saying, one who's to be ruler in Israel, and his coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He's going to be in the line of Jesse, which means he's going to be born. He's going to have a genealogy. He's going to have a, he's going to have a dad, a mom. And yet he's going to be from ancient days? Well, that's weird. Zechariah 9 is one more we should note because it quotes Psalm 72. Listen to Zechariah 9 in verse 9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Oh, he's still coming? Good. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey. Now, you can't help as a Christian knows a little bit of the New Testament story, just, just jumping over the fence for a minute, right? He's coming on a donkey. You know where this is going. And he'll speak peace to the nations. Psalm 72-like. And here, Psalm 72 quoted, His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is written, this prophecy from Zechariah during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. It's after the people have returned from Babylon where they were in captivity. They've returned to their own land. 
It's been decimated, so now they're working to rebuild the walls, rebuild the, the houses, and, and rebuild the temple. But as they return to the land, they still live in occupied territory. Some people don't even come back from Babylon. What's the point? Occupied here, occupied there. Some come back, but they still see themselves as in exile. They're in the dirt that they own, that God has given them, but they don't have a king. No king. You can't have a king when there's a king in the land. If they're letting you live there and there's a king, he's not going to let you have like a sub-king. They, yes, rebuild the temple, but it was a two-bit temple compared with Solomon's. Some of the old ladies weep when they look at the new one because they know the old one that got destroyed. God's glory never enters that temple, that second one. On top of all that, you have 400 years where no prophets say anything because God hasn't said anything to them. So you've got these promises of a king to come and they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and yet hope keeps going lower and lower and lower. 400 years of crickets. Nothing. Until a godly teenager girl, not even married yet, gets a message from an angel. That's the third part of the blanket. The coming of the great king. The coming of the great king. It's announced by an angel to Mary. Luke 1 tells us what the angel says to Mary. Verse 32, he will be great and he'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. What? The shoot from the stump of Jesse? David's son? He will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. No end in time. No end in space. Shepherds get the announcement too from an angel. A star appears to these magi which are king wise guys, wise kings. Kings. And what do they do when they see this star in Matthew 2? They go to the star and they bring gifts to this king. Though he's born in utter poverty, though the whole scene stinks of poverty, literally, they see he's the king. And they do what kings do to hire kings. Give gifts. Bring honor. Bow down before. The story goes along and Matthew 12 is another big splash on the water. Another key part of the blanket of the Bible with the kingdom thread. In verse 23, the people wonder of Matthew 12. Can this be the son of David, they say? Can this be the promised one, the king that we've been waiting for? The Genesis 49, 10 ruler who's lion-like. Well, Jesus answers it in a roundabout way. By verse 42, he says this. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and she'll condemn it. The queen of the south is the queen of Sheba. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Just the wisdom of Solomon, the practical kingly knowledge and wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Standing right in front of you. Solomon was great. And in many ways, he fit the lens of Psalm 72. Almost in an unparalleled way. Even more so in some ways than David. His great father. But there's a great son who came. He's greater than Solomon. And hence, Jesus can say, Queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment and condemn you because she traveled and gave to get Solomon's wisdom and right in front of you is the thing to which Solomon was pointing. God's promises were pointing. So 
No surprise that Philippians 2 says this about Jesus, that God's highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in Tarshish and Sheba and Seba and the coastlands, in the desert, on the mountaintops. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day his reign will be apparent. And until then, his disciples are to pray that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now remember that Psalm 72 talks about the king's justice in in these soft and gentle hues. Remember that? Let me just show you again, just to remind you. Verse 4 shows us that the king's justice and his righteousness is primarily expressed in terms of care and compassion. May he defend the cause of the poor, the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy. Skip down to verse 12. He delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy. And saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life because their blood is precious in his sight. What amazing verbs here. That he defends, he gives deliverance, he delivers, he has pity, he saves, he redeems. In fact, that's the reason kings praise him. Do you see that? Look at verse 11. All kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls. Some kings see his compassion and care. And they're moved to worship. They're moved to submission. They see that it's remarkable and unparalleled. And we know just one such king. He came... Not to be served, but to serve. You could just go to Luke as one example of how the New Testament speaks of Jesus' care for the poor and the needy and the weak. Like in Luke 4, where he's quoting Isaiah 61. He's in the synagogue reading the Old Testament Bible, and it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and set at liberty those who are oppressed in Psalm 72-like fashion. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. No teaching necessary, as was customary, to read and then teach. He just reads it, sits down, hands it back. That's it. I don't need to teach it. I am it. Luke 6. Jesus said, blessed are you who are poor. Matthew 5 says, poor in spirit. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry. Matthew 5 says, hungry for righteousness. Jesus says, you'll be satisfied. See? Psalm 72 like. Luke 7. The disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus and they say, John wants to know if you're the one, the promised one, the the Genesis 49.10 ruler. Are you the son of David, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed? And Jesus' answer to them is, go and tell John what you've seen and what you've heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So no surprise in Luke 14, Jesus commissions his disciples to care for the poor. When you give a feast, he says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. And call me blessed tells a parable where the master of the house tells his servants to go out and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And yet these things point to something so much more than just physical blindness, physical poverty, physical lameness. You see, Jesus is clearly showing throughout the Gospels 
that our real need is a spiritual one. That it's not less compassionate and less caring for him to first care for our souls. His real deliverance, his redemption, the way he cares for our life and the way he views our blood as precious is with a spiritual deliverance, a spiritual redemption. Get this. He cared for our souls. He thought our blood was precious such that he spilled his own to protect us, to save us. The king cared by dying in our place. It's so remarkable to read the gospel accounts and see how intimate Jesus' care is for specific people, right? Lazarus, and and that guy needs healing, and, and these people need feeling. The king is so close up in his care, unlike Solomon, unlike any king that's ever been. He's so intimate in his care and protection and provision. And there's no king like this that he would die. He would serve unto death that we might live, that we might go free so that there might be forgiveness and reconciliation. He cared for us like that. That's what Psalm 72 was giving us a little echo of, a little foreshadow of what's to come. The substance in Christ is so much better than the foreshadow that came before it. And maybe you think, well, Psalm 72, I I still wonder if it says too much, even for Jesus. I mean, mean, we still struggle, right? And it's still hard down here. And it's not just peace on every side. And remember it said that the the mountaintops would just flow with crops. I don't see that yet. Yes, but there is genuinely in Jesus peace and protection, provision and praise. And these themes have not been whittled down to a spiritual level in the new covenant. They've been microwaved, exploded. They've been, well, Psalm 72 is put on steroids. And now his blessings are truly global. His blessings are true. His blessings are eternal. And so Ephesians 1 can fulfill the promises and prayer requests of Psalm 72 by saying that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Psalm 72 is fulfilled in Ephesians 2.14 that says he himself is our peace. And he's brought the amazing reconciliation of Jew and Gentile. So blessings and peace are, yes, vertical and spiritual and eternal, but they're also horizontal and real and now, even if imperfect. So in Christ, relationships can be fixed. In Christ, families makes sense. We talked about this on Easter Sunday. And when you have the New Testament dealing with marriages and parenting and work and workers, it's just showing that the kingdom, heaven on earth, is starting to get applied in very concrete ways. It all now makes sense. It's all now injected with meaning. The church, for all of its warts, all of its shortcomings, all of its infighting, which is rather famous. Yes, I, I have a book in my study that's called Great Church Fights. It's just what you think it is. It's about a deacon who brought a gun to church, you know, that kind of thing. Thankfully, we don't have one of those. Well, actually, we do, but they don't bring a gun to church for the wrong reasons. The church, with all of its warts and shortcomings, is still remarkably diverse. Why are we here? Because we all make the same? Because we all look the same? Because we're all cool? Because we're all old? Because, because we share Christ. There's nothing like that in this world. If you're not a Christian and you think that this is just a, a, a big religious club, the equivalent of AA or something like that, or the, you know, the Lions Club or something, 
Let me challenge you to spend six months with a community group. And you tell me those relationships are merely human, merely horizontal, and just self-interest. You tell me that those folks sacrifice and give and love just like the world does, just like any club does. I tell you they don't. And yet there's more to come. Psalm 72 even speaks of something more than what we know now and what we know will come. We know that he's not done. We know that he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet. And we know according to Hebrews 2 that everything is in subjection to him, but we don't yet see it all in subjection to him. But one day we will. Now and what? Not yet. Once again. So we've seen the now, and the not yet is one more thing in the outline. A fourth thing, a fourth part of the blanket is the return of the great king. The return, he's coming again. 1 Peter 1, verse 11 tells us that there are really two eras to this Jesus story. There's the first coming and a second coming. There's his sufferings and the glory to follow. And when he comes in glory, he will come for salvation He will come in redemption, but he will also come in recompense. So listen to Revelation 19, where John saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe that's as though it's dipped in blood because he's been making war. It's the blood of his enemies. The name by which he's called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arraigned in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, like like Isaiah 11 said he would. With that sharp sword, he strikes down the nations. And he'll rule them with a rod of iron like like the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will tread the winepress, the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. In other words, like Psalm 72 said, his enemies will lick the dust. Yes, when he returns, his reign will be clear, but so will be his redemption. So will be his glorious plan of reconciliation and making all things new. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death, according to Revelation 21. This king is sovereign over creation. That's how you get something pictured in crops on a mountaintop. We're talking about the one who made it all. Nothing but blessing at the end of days for those who are his. He possesses all justice and righteousness like Psalm 72, 1 prayed for. But we don't need to pray for it for him because he is righteousness. He has the justice and righteousness of God because he is God. And his name will endure forever. It's his fame and his glory that is spreading and will keep spreading until the end of days. And that's how our Bible ends. It ends in a very Psalm 72-esque way. These are some of the last few verses of your Bible. And the heavenly city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, because there's no threat outside. There'll be no night there. And they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. There is no king like our king. Spurgeon said, we see on the shore of time the wrecks of the Caesars, the relics of the Mughals, the last remnants of the Ottomans. 
I don't know who the Ottomans are, but apparently they left us some things to put in front of chairs and couches. But that's it. That's all they left us. And no one even knows that. Charlemagne, Maximilian, Napoleon, and we could add Stalin and Hitler and Kim Jong-il. How they flit like shadows before us. They were and are not, but Jesus is forever. Every other king in history is a cheap knockoff. Everyone. Compared with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So praise him for his rich and intricate plan, which he's orchestrating like a masterful conductor. Orchestrating like a masterful playwright. It's not done yet, but it's all but done. So you can trust him and you can trust his plan for your part in his story. You can trust where he has you. You can trust that he'll do you good, even if it's slowly, even if it takes time, even if it's not until the king returns. Psalm 72 teaches us to bow. Psalm 72 teaches us to kiss the king lest he be angry with you. Psalm 72 teaches us to pray, but not to pray for the king to pray what the king taught us to pray, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done. Psalm 72 teaches us to honor this king. We should do what the king says because there's no king like this king. To him goes all glory in all the world at all times. So it's got to go broader. It's got to reach new people. There are people who deny the king, ignore the king, hate the king. And the king is compassionate and merciful and extends an open hand to them. And he calls you as a representative to go and to tell, to plead, and to pray. The glory's got to get deeper, too. Got to get deeper in our hearts. It's got to find new corners of our lives where the light isn't being shown, where we doubt his provision, where we ignore his praise. Where we, we mess up his peace. He's good. And he does good.